as opposed to saying, oh, the classic pinhook notes are green apple, cinnamon, butterscotch, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care about that part. I'm saying, let's think about these quality benchmarks. Let's blend with the goal of achieving those benchmarks. And then the actual flavor profile is just a, a natural outcome. You're listening to Barrel Talk, a podcast diving deep into what drives leaders in the whiskey industry. My name is Kevin Bridge. I'm a photographer and whiskey enthusiast. I'm sitting down with people who've dedicated their lives to whiskey to hear their stories and why they're so passionate about their craft. From certified sommelier to Kentucky bourbon maker, Sean Josephs has taken a unique approach to making whiskey. He's borrowing an idea from the wine industry to pinhook his own bourbon and make it the best possible whiskey every year. That's how he's setting apart pinhook bourbon from others in the game. And so, Sean, you started in a you started in a unique way. You started your certified sommelier, so your background Correct. is in wine. Yes. Tell me how you started in wine first, and then we can get to how you made it to whiskey. Sure. Yeah. So the the wine. I mean, it really the wine thing really started with restaurants. Okay. Um, so my wife opened a Spanish tapas restaurant in New York in 2004. Um, in fact, they're still open and are reopening today, uh, which is kind of amazing. That's cool. Um, so, um, and so her opening that restaurant. I was not in the restaurant industry and I happened to get um, fired from my advertising job not too long after she opened her restaurant, which was challenging because I was supposed to be like the breadwinner while she was off doing the, you know, the crazy entrepreneur thing. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I found myself, you know, no job, no insurance, whatever. But anyway, just like as a matter of course, I started helping out at the restaurant just running food, which is like basically the only step above dishwasher is just carrying food from kitchen to from the kitchen to tables. I just fell in love with that. You know, I had always loved food. I'd never really thought about it as a career. I'd like to cook when I was young, when I was a kid, even in high school. And I just never really put the pieces together. It's like, Oh, I could pursue this as a career. And, uh, so I just loved that. I always played a lot of sports. I think restaurants have a lot in common with sports. It's like you're a team. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie. You're definitely in it. Like it's very physical. Um, and you're just like, you're in it every night dealing with all the challenges that go down in a restaurant, um, which come at you in all sorts of ways. And um, it's really fun. And so um, kind of quickly realized that, being a food runner at my wife's restaurant was maybe not, not the best idea. Um, so I went to work and then I, it's like at that point though, just in that short period of time, I really got into my head that this was the career. I was like, this is what I'm going to do now. Like I, I didn't really know in what way, shape or form, but I was like, I love this. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And the thing that made the most sense to me, cause it was a second career was to work just kind of like go to the top. So I went to work at a restaurant that was uh, at one point a four star, you know, as reviewed by the New York Times restaurant, which usually there are only four or five restaurants in the entire city that mm -hmm. achieve, achieve that level, uh, a restaurant called Chanterelle. 
And what I quickly realized, I didn't go there with the intent of getting into wine, but what I quickly realized, if you're in that type of restaurant environment, if you're not knowledgeable about wine, you're going nowhere. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just it's the only way to really be an asset to the restaurant is to be wine knowledgeable. And so the sommelier there was a, a, a guy or still is a guy, but um, the restaurant is no longer there, but Roger de Gorn, who's a master sommelier. Um, so the quarter master sommeliers is, you know, one of the most respected organizations in the world for um, accrediting and training sommeliers. And so I just started kind of working with him doing inventory on the weekends for free, which you used to be allowed to do. I don't think you can do that anymore, but um, basically just immersing myself in wine. I ended up um, getting my certified sommelier from the quartermaster sommeliers. And then I did not, I thought I actually wanted to pursue the master sommelier, which to get masters, basically like the fourth level within the quartermaster sommeliers. Okay. But I went to the second level, which is the certified sommelier. Um, and then eventually um, I went from Chanterelle to a restaurant called Per Se, which is also a four-star restaurant. Thomas Keller is the chef, you know, who's also the chef of the French Laundry. Okay. You know, two of the most iconic restaurants in the, in, and I think when I was at Per Se, it was ranked the eighth best restaurant in the world, you know, <laughs> by like the San Pellegrino, um, you know, world restaurant. I think it's like the, the world ranking for restaurants. And, uh, and then from there went on to actually have a role as a sommelier working for a large restaurant group in New York. Um, so I spent then another two and a half years as, you know, just running the beverage program for a restaurant where I was in charge of the wine list, but really in charge of the entire bar program. Okay. Um, and that was all in Manhattan. Um, so that was really that, that was my wine background. And obviously I'm, cutting out a lot of steps because basically to go from knowing nothing about wine to getting your certified sommelier implies a lot of, on the one hand, like what they would call theory, which is just like, okay, Italy has 20 major wine regions. The country's broken up into 20 ma major wine regions. Each of those regions has multiple subregions. All of those subregions have different climates, different soil types, different rules and regulations around, sure. you know, what, what is Brunello di Montalcino, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that's just one country. So <laughs> you basically have to learn the entire world of wine. And then of course the more fun and important part is, and then taste and actually understand what's what and do blind tasting. So I was part of a lot of blind tasting groups and really studying, um, what they would call deductive tasting in wine, which is like, how do you analyze a wine? Especially when that could be knowing what it is, but also a lot of times not knowing what it is. So okay. based on what's in my glass, how can I understand the structure of wine so that I can start to make some assumptions about where is this wine from? What grape do I think it is, et cetera, et cetera. So you spend a lot of, a lot of time working at these, some of the best restaurants in the world being learning and mastering wine. Where does whiskey come in? Why, where, where is bourbon? You mentioned that you were the head of kind of the entire um, spirits of, or the bar of these restaurants. Is that where kind yeah. of the bourbon and whiskey come in? Yes. It was a mix too. Right. So you, in, even in these wine exams, you had to know about spirits, okay. right? So there would just be basic, you had to know the basics of 
um, production and distillation, you know, again, on a relatively surface level, but you know, the idea of, especially the quartermaster sommeliers, right. Is like, it was, there's a, and I mean, this as a compliment, there's kind of like an old fashioned aspect to it. Like it was old school, like, well, then at the end of the meal, you should learn, you should be able to know how to explain which cognac could be paired with which cigar. Okay. Right. So you kind of have to know about all of it. You're not just supposed to be the wine guy. You're supposed to be someone who is knowledgeable in the industry. Um, And I also happen to have a friend who was way ahead of the curve, just like super dug in on American whiskey way before I'm talking like in 2004, 2003. Like he was, he was buying Blanton's straight from the barrel that was only available for the Japanese market in 2003 wow right he had a bottle of maker's mark black wax for that was only made for the japanese market that actually had japanese writing on it right so he was like way way ahead yeah and so i think there's also an aspect like everyone i know who's a sommelier also typically will have some other you know they could get really into sake like Roger DeGorn, who was at Chanterelle, was like this huge sake aficionado and expert, or someone might get into craft beer. But once you understand how to taste, and you're like always around food, and you're always around wine, and you also understand how to learn, because again, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, this week you need to learn all about the Loire Valley in Italy, or I'm sorry, in France, or this week you need to learn all about Piedmont in Italy, you're, you're kind of getting used to how you like learn facts. So mm-hmm it's very easy to turn around and apply how you figured out how to learn how to taste and also to just learn about the theory side to anything. And just because my friend was always tasting cool stuff and I was developing my palate, I was just kind of blown away by American whiskey. I mean, think about, think about all the stuff that everyone hunts for now. Right and they'll kill themselves to like get their hands on a bottle of this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Now imagine the time where all of that stuff, you know, aside from like buying things from, you know, Japan or, or Britain, but like imagine all that stuff is a hundred percent readily available because nobody cares about it. So you can MSRP taste everything too. And it's not marked up and it's, yeah, it's not marked up. Yeah. So imagine, you know, the correct pricing of Van Winkle 13 year rye is $60. Mm-hmm. And it used, and when he was getting into it, that's what it was available for. So yeah. now imagine, and I don't, I mean, I don't think Van Winkle 13 year rye is not the same product that it was. Um, but that original product is an incredibly complex and amazing whiskey. Now imagine the way you're taught to think about wine is, is not really about what do you like, but it's like how complex is something. Right. That's the penultimate. I know obviously you love whiskey, right? When you, once you go down the rabbit hole and you get past like, Oh, this is Woodford. And you're kind of digging into like, well, what's the 1920 prohibition series and how much more complex the flavors are, how much longer the finish is, how, you know, how much more interesting the aromas are, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then you're, you're taught to think of it in terms of also like, what does it cost? Mm-hmm. Right. Like Van Winkle 13 year rye at $60. That's, and you're like, oh my God. And then you, in your head, you're comparing it to 
well, if I think of a wine, that's that complex, that's a $500 bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah. And then think, and then think about Elijah Craig 18 year as a $48 retail item, you know, even back in 2008. And then, you know, all the stuff that everyone chases and loves is basically there are no expensive American whiskeys. Right. So I just yeah. like, that was another reason to fall in love with it, which I guess is a little bit ironic in the current market. Yeah, but at the sure. time it was also sort of the appeal compared to wine. It's like, Oh, this stuff is really complex. It's really delicious. It's really affordable and it's readily available. In my experience, you know, I, when I was working at per se, you could have a table of seven people and they would spend $57,000 on wine. Jeez. Right. Yeah. And those wines that, which we would get to taste are delicious. There's no question about it, but it's kind of just like Pappy. It's like anyone who cares about whiskey is going to obviously say Pappy 20 is good. It's not worth $3,000 mm-hmm. and it's not 500 times better than Evan Williams single barrel that costs 31 bucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, and so, that was part of the, and I think, frankly, that's probably what's a little bit unappealing now about American whiskey is that sort of, you know, well, the chance that you're going to get to taste this stuff, certain things is very slim unless you're like super in the game and you know the right people and you know the way to find it or you know someone who will like, sure, I'll send you a little 50 ml of my Pappy 20 because, I, you know, you're I've become friends with you and I know you really want to taste it. Um, so I loved the accessibility of it. So it's just all those things really led me to get more and more interested in American whiskey. And so when does Pinhook come into play? When do you decide that, okay, maybe it's time I want to start doing my own thing in whiskey? Yeah. So the, there was a, the in-between phase, which ties everything together is that I decided that I wanted to open my own restaurant. And there were enough bourbon, I'm sorry, there were enough like wine bars and and out there and I'd really gotten into bourbon and I like to consider myself somewhat creative and I wanted to do something different. So in 2008, I opened a bourbon bar called Char Number 4 in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, which was really the first American whiskey bar and restaurant Mm. outside of Kentucky in the United States of America. So... I was just way ahead of the curve um, and, you know, GQ named it one of the three best places to drink bourbon in America, which as I like, always like to say is probably because there are only like five places to drink <laughs> bourbon in America, but you know, the other, the other two spots were proof on Maine and Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember, it was like proof on Maine. Us, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to even remember what, you know, probably like, I don't know, bluegrass tavern in Lexington or something like that, but there really weren't, very many options. Um, and so because we were really one of the few people doing it and the only people doing it outside of Kentucky, you know, then we're in Esquire's list of the 50 best bars in America. I also happen to have an amazing chef. So we made the list of New York magazines, 101 best restaurants in all of New York, (laughs) you know, so we're, and we're just getting a lot of attention and we were ahead of the curve, you know, Mm -hmm. we were ahead of the bourbon curve. We were, you know, the, the bar at chart number four would now remind people of a lot of bars that they've seen 
but at the time there was nothing like it. So when you walked in behind the bar was an illuminated display of only American whiskey. You know, okay. so we had, we had, um, you know, single malt scotch and blended scotch and Japanese and Irish and Canadian, et cetera, et cetera, in drawers behind the bar. But when you walked into the restaurant, the only thing you could see was American whiskey, okay. period. All of our cocktails only had American whiskey in them. You know, it was really like my chef was from Texas and we were, you know, smoking our own bacon and making our own house-made sausage. And, you know, again, a lot of things now that I think would be considered like more, you know, pretty common at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also a neighborhood restaurant. And so we would get a lot of people who would come in and I can't tell you the number of people that we turned on to bourbon. Like they didn't walk into the restaurant to get turned on to bourbon. They maybe came in to get a glass of wine, but then they're staring at this wall. Yeah. And, and the cool thing is, you know, about bourbon are all the cool labels. So you can see everything. And again, this was before they were really allocated items. And so, you know, it's like all the BTAC and all the Pappy and, but also fighting cock and also mellow corn and everything in between is all just sitting on one shelf illuminated. And people are like, Hey, what's that one next to the thing with the blah, blah, blah. Oh, that one. Oh, that's really cool. That's actually the first craft distillery in in Colorado. It's called Stranahan's. Um, you know, they're using hundred percent malted barley, but they're aging it in new chart Oak. Oh, cool. Let me try that. And so, you know, we probably had like one of the few well-trained staffs just really around American whiskey, educating consumers around the product. Um, and so then I opened four years later, I opened another restaurant called Maysville, um, which was, again, I had a great chef and, but it was, you know, full restaurant, but also huge, even bigger, <laughs> more giant wall of American whiskey. We got an amazing two-star review from the New York times. So, you know, that was a very, um, very popular restaurant. I then opened another bourbon restaurant in, um, in uh, New Orleans as well. Um, and really only got out of the restaurant business in 2017. Um, so, but I guess now to go backwards, I, so imagine again, 2008, when I opened char number four, there's one maker's mark, right? There's one Basil Hayden. There's one knob Creek. There's almost no craft distilleries at all. Hudson Baby Bourbon, Stranahan's, McCarthy's, which is a peated single malt out of Oregon, St. George out of California. But there's basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, so Willett, you know, Willett with Willett, Johnny Drum, Noah's Mill, Rowan's Creek, probably the really the only kind of non-distiller producer in the game with like a real portfolio. Um, Whistle Pig, I guess, had just started. Right. In 2008, I think high West had started in 2007. If you're talking about people sourcing. Yeah. Yeah. So so I just saw a tremendous opportunity and really not so much an opportunity to like, Oh, let's build a brand. That was more like, and I always try to say this in a respectful way, but I thought that there was just a serious lack of variety. If you think back to what it was like, then it was just the big guys, right. The beams and the, um, the makers, and this was before bean bot makers and there's makers mark and there's Brown Foreman and all the big distilleries that you know about. And they just, no one was doing the barrel finishes. Yeah. That wasn't a thing yet. 
you know, single barrel picks were not a thing. So there was really a serious lack of variety. There's just like, you know, this is what we have. We do a high proof thing, you know, we do our everyday stuff. We have an 86 proof, but also a hundred proof, and, you know? Yeah. So I was just looking at it and I was thinking, and by the way, I thought, even though it wasn't our focus, I was like, well, scotch is a lot more creative, right? Yeah. I mean, they're first of all, because the rules are a little less restrictive, um, rigid. Yeah. But I was thinking like, okay, there's got to be a way where you're still in the realm of bourbon, right? So you're still staying in the lane of following the rules, but you're taking a different approach. And so that's where the wine thing comes in, right? So, and I say this with total respect because the big guys make such a good product, but basically the way the big guys make their product is how bad wine is made, right? How is you're that? Taking, because you're, you're taking something that has the potential to be unique and you're turning it into a homogenous product. Okay, yeah. Right? Yeah, and and I think people don't talk about this very much. Even the big even the big distilleries know that chill filtering is a way of making a lesser product. Mm -hmm. They know that otherwise they wouldn't bother doing their high proof and their single barrel stuff unfiltered. And they wouldn't bother pointing out the fact that this is a non chill filtered product. Yeah. Chill filtration is the way to dump a thousand barrels in a tank and make sure that batch after batch at that scale has the same color texture and flavor. But in order to do that, you have to strip a lot out of it. And it's also a way to create something that frankly is like going back to my other example, the person who's a casual drinker that likes Woodford or maybe likes old Forrester is going to be totally thrown off track if they tasted the prohibition series. Yeah, definitely. Like it's not for them. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different consumer. Um, and so in the wine world, you know, there's Kendall Jackson and there's turning leaf and there's yellow tail. And those are the guys making wine the way that big distilleries make the mass production products. But good wine and high quality wine is made by, you know, one on a smaller scale and two with the idea that like each vintage is meant to be unique. Mm -hmm. You don't have a flavor profile. You don't have something that you're trying to replicate. You take what God gives you every year and you make the best wine you can. And sometimes, you know, the weather gods are kinder to you and you get better fruit. And in other years you get rot and, too much rain or not enough rain and you get hail and you get all these things that affect your yields and also the quality. Right. Yeah. And so it's just a celebration of the best thing that you can make. And so that was really the original conceit and idea behind Pinhook was to make annual vintages and, and not in the way that I guess, because I'm not saying we're the first people to put a vintage date on our bottles, but like when, BTAC with stag or whatever puts a date on it. It's really just like that was the way that their um, product came together at cast strength of that year. This was really about the idea of like intentionally blending and even proofing to just create the best possible whiskey every year. Mm -hmm. And to say, I don't care about what it tasted like last year. 
that's not really a reference point. It's just, these are the barrels we have. Let's make the most delicious whiskey we can. And if one year that comes across as more like fruit and more, you know, sweetness via caramel and another year it comes across as more spice or more earth, that's, that's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the goal, which goes back to, so when you learn about wine, the thing that you're taught is again, one is no one cares about your preference. Like that's a separate conversation mm -hmm. when you're analyzing wine, it's, is this wine qualitatively good? So what you should be able to do is say, I hate California Cabernet Sauvignon. It's just not for me, but I have four California Cabernet Sauvignons in front of me. They might not be my preference, but I need to analyze them deductively based on quality and decide which one is made or, you know, you should be able to taste the California Cabernet Sauvignon. It's like, wow, this is an incredibly complex and well-made wine. I would never choose to drink it, mm -hmm. but it's of tremendous quality. And so essentially the way that you do that, which comes through training your palate is you're looking for aromatic complexity. I mean, these are like, this is condensing it, but you're looking for aromatic complexity, complexity on the palate, balance, length of finish, alcohol integration, right? We all know what it is when like something is high proof and you're like, Oh, it doesn't really show the proof. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's like the, 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 the proof is nicely folded into the overall profile length of finish mouthfeel. Right. So those are the benchmarks of quality that I use to do the blending. Okay. As opposed to saying, Oh, the classic pinhook notes are green apple, cinnamon, butterscotch, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care about that part. I'm saying, let's think about these quality benchmarks. Let's blend with the goal of achieving those benchmarks. And then the actual flavor profile is just a, a natural outcome of that. And so that will just fall wherever it falls. So now when you started Pinhook, I, I obviously with most, when you started a whiskey brand, you have to find whiskey to start with. You can't Correct. like because you have whiskey takes time to age. So yep. you, I'm assuming you started sourcing. Um, were you looking at MGP? Yeah. So it's a it's it's a great question because I think that, and again, keep in mind, like I was in the industry from the standpoint of owning a bourbon bar. Yeah. But I wasn't in the industry. Yeah. Right. So. I had no idea how it worked. I just knew that I needed to find barrels. I knew the one thing I knew for sure is I had zero interest. I think I always just was not interested in science and really like distillation is just, it's a chemistry project. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so like, that was really not interesting to me. I was like, Oh, I can't wait to like, wouldn't it be so amazing to mill your own grain and ferment it? You know, I was probably the person that bought the, home brewing kit, but then never did it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I love beer. It's really cool to think of like getting a five gallon pot and like cooking my mash and like making a beer, but it's not going to happen. Um, so yeah, we knew we wanted to find barrels. And the other interesting thing, which is funny to think about now because MGP and some of these other Bardstown bourbon company, you know, some of these larger um, bulk producers are well known. I'd never heard of any of it. Mm -hmm. So I started by trying to go, well, I went to Drew at KBD because like he came into my bar and he's like, oh, I don't do that anymore. 
because I think he was bourbon was starting to catch on and I think Drew was realizing like well why would I sell my barrels and bottle them for other people when I can make a lot more money selling my own brands yeah. so he's like I don't do that anymore and then I knew someone who knew the folks at Heaven Hill so like I sent a letter to Max Shapiro and I was like hey I'm you know I own this bourbon bar and I'm just looking for 20 barrels of bourbon type of thing and he's like no that's not going to happen um and so I honestly can't remember who directed me there, but I did eventually quote unquote find MGP, right. Mm -hmm. Which was called LDI at the time. But again, it wasn't common knowledge that like, Oh, if you're looking for bulk whiskey, there's this company in Indiana. That's one of the largest distilleries in the country. Yeah. I'd never heard of them because, you know, meanwhile, the people that were sourcing from them were not talking about it. So this is like, that was around the time when Templeton got in a lot of trouble because they literally were pretending that they had a distillery in Ohio. Yeah. People, they just didn't want to disclose that they weren't making their own whiskey. Yeah. So not only were they not saying like somehow, I don't even know how they got away with not saying distilled in Indiana on the bottle because you're supposed to put where it was distilled, but they were like intentionally misrepresenting the fact that they were sourcing. Yeah. Let alone where they were sourcing from. But anyway, so like I got directed to MGP or LDI. And and then obviously once you just even know they exist, it's like, yeah, someone picks up the phone and they're like, how do you want 10,000 barrels or a hundred thousand? I mean, it was like (laughs) whatever you want back then. So we started by buying 20 barrels of three-year-old MGP bourbon. We paid $465 a barrel for three-year-old stuff. I think at one point I want to say the going rate for three-year-old was like 10 times that now it's like settled down. And I think it's probably just quadruple. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So the cool thing, so I, I founded the company with two friends of mine who are not in the industry, but you know, loved bourbon and it was just complimentary skill set. So one of, one of my uh, co-founders, Jay Peterson, he, you know, grew up spending time in Kentucky and just really loved it. And he has a business background. And my other co-founder is a designer. And so we kind of had a good compliment. Like I was in the industry and I knew bourbon and then we had someone who could do all our packaging design. And then we had someone who actually understood a little bit about finance and and business. Yeah. Um, But, you know, for $9,000, you know, we had a bourbon company and we were paying a dollar per barrel a year for storage. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically for $9,000 and 240 bucks a year, you know, we had a bourbon company, um, which was really cool. And we already had the idea of the vintages. We just didn't know how it was all going to come together. So we shipped the barrels and the big thing for us too, right. Is we, and especially back then, and but I'd say it's still the case. You still feel like Kentucky's where all the magic happens. And so we really also, I had spent a little time in Kentucky, but we really wanted to dig in, in Kentucky. And so we shipped the barrels from uh, LDI to Bardstown, Kentucky, to a place called Strong Spirits, which is actually still around. Okay. So Strong was actually, they created Redemption. Okay. So that was their brand before they sold it. And they still have some brands, but then they also do a lot of, um, they don't distill, but they do a lot of, aging and bottling and labeling and all that good stuff. Um, 
So then we just had this fun opportunity to go to Kentucky four or five, six times a year and like check in on our barrels as they were aging. That was really half of it too, was like, A, we want to do something fun. And then B, we just want to get closer to the product. And again, because no one was doing single barrel picks and all that kind of stuff, this was our first chance to like really see it. And you're like, you're there. And then you're tasting your barrels a few months later yeah. and you're seeing how different the barrels are from each other. And you're seeing, well, how much have they matured over this period of time? Um, and then the, the horse piece, you know, even though you could like, if you looked at it from afar, it would just seem like, well, of course, like there have always been horses connected to bourbon and it's the two things Kentucky's most famous for. But my friend uh, Jay, who I was mentioning, his best friend from high school grew up in thoroughbred horse racing, this guy, Jamie Hill. And so we would always stay at Jamie's house when we would go to Kentucky and Jamie, um, you know, like I said, grew up in thoroughbred horse racing is, and is in the, in the business. And so we would stay at his house and just because, you know, there are only so many distilleries you can visit and there's only so much to do in Kentucky. So we'd also go check out Jamie's stuff, go to Keeneland, which is the track in Lexington and go to Churchill Downs and watch horses train and go to horse sales and just kind of see, go to horse farms. We were just kind of seeing the whole thing. And we, one thing that Jamie does, which I had never heard of is he's, is pin hooking. So pin hooking is a huge part of thoroughbred horse racing where you buy a baby thoroughbred based on its lineage with the explicit intent of selling it for a profit when it's mature. Okay. So that's actually this huge part of the horse business is you buy a baby horse because you think that someone else will pay more for the horse than you did once the horse is a year older. Hmm. And so we kind of connected the dots with that. And we're like, Oh, that's such a cool word. I've never heard of that. That's a cool concept. We're pin hooking bourbon. We're buying baby bourbon based on its lineage and hoping it turns into, you know, like a thoroughbred, you know, whiskey when it grows up. And we also were really like, for the reasons that I said, we really wanted to be transparent about the fact that we were buying barrels. Cause I had already seen people who were like kind of misrepresenting, even if it wasn't as extreme as what happened with Templeton, it's just a little misleading yeah. when you look at someone's label. So we wanted it to be really clear. And so we even built into this name, the idea that we buy and sell. Right. Yeah. Um, and Jamie also manages a racing stable called bourbon lane stable and every horse in the stable has bourbon in the name. And so we thought because we had this vintage idea, wouldn't it be really cool to connect each vintage to a horse that was currently racing? And so that was the other opportunity that we saw, because again, it's like plants has a horse on top and makers does commemorative bottlings for Derby winners and mm -hmm. Woodford sponsors the Derby, but we were looking at it and we were having all these cool experiences around bourbon and horses and going to the track. And the one thing we realized is no one has actually connected it to the horses that are currently racing. And so that's where we came up with this idea. And we said, Jamie, every year we want you to pick a new thoroughbred, but we want it to be a thoroughbred that just started its career. So you don't know how the horse is going to do and just pick whichever horse in your stable you think has the best chance of making it to the Kentucky Derby. So for example, even though he didn't make it to the Derby hard rye guy, ran in a race three weeks ago where if he had won the race, he would have been in the Kentucky Derby. 
because he would have had enough derby points. So it's it, to me, it's just part of the authenticity of the idea that, no, it's not just a random picture of a horse or it's not a horse that was already a champion. It's something tied to this idea of chance and luck and not really knowing how it's going to go. Um, and I think if nothing else, it kind of is also meant to reinforce the idea of uniqueness. Like every yeah. year it's new whiskey in the bottle. Every year it's a new horse on the label and it's something new to explore. Um, and it's not about repetition of the same thing. Now those vintages are, you have the vertical series of the bourbon yep. and the rye and that, yep. how, that, that whiskey doesn't come from MGP anymore, correct? No, that does. So the vertical series is, is all MGP. Okay. And basically what happened was we, you know, I mean, the whole other part of the story, which, you know, we can talk about the whole castle and key piece. Yeah. That was something that we never, yeah. So we didn't, so the castle and key piece, and I think this is true of all businesses, right? You need a little, you need luck. And then you need to be in a position to like take advantage of your lucky opportunity. And so one of Jamie's best friends, Will Arvin was the guy who decided to buy the old Taylor distillery mm -hmm. and restore it. So we were the first people that were approached about having a contract. Mm -hmm. So that was just dumb luck. And so we had just assumed, I mean, I don't think we had thought far enough ahead about, well, and there's, Bardstown Bourbon Company didn't exist. Wilderness Trail didn't exist. So we weren't really thinking about, well, where are the other places one could source or have a contract? Um, and I don't think in our heads we were thinking, oh, we're just going to be buying MGP for the rest of our lives. But, you know, we also didn't have any specific thought on where else we would be getting whiskey. Yeah. Um, and so this opportunity just fell in our laps. So I was meeting with them when it was just, they had basically just started to clear the site. They had no idea who the master distiller was going to be like, there was nothing like it was just, we bought this property and we're going to restore it. And we have no idea, you know, we know that we need to buy new stills. We know that we need someone who actually knows how to operate stills. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and so anyway, we, we found ourselves in this lucky position but we already had a decent number of MGP barrels. And so then knowing that, um, knowing that we were going to basically kind of switch what we call our flagship product, which is the orange wax and the green wax, our everyday, you know, uh, bourbon and rye. Okay. And then also our cast strength stuff to our castle and key distillate. I was trying to think of something interesting and fun that would also keep our MGP very separate from our castle and key. Yeah. And, and it just so happened, which is often the way these things go. It's like, if you buy a big chunk of barrels, a lot of times they're all the same age to me. And people have said this to me in a way where they're like, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but this seems like the most obvious idea in the world. And I was like, right. And no one's done it before. <laughs> right. It's like, because age is the single most obvious and noticeable factor more than mash bill, more than yeast, more than Rick house position is just one more year of age Yeah, is maybe the most. Um, and to me also, because I'd never seen it done. I, and to be honest, I just don't really count the rhetoric thing. Like that wasn't even on my radar. I mean, I was aware of it, but I wasn't really thinking about that because it, the whiskey's so old 
I was thinking more about the evolution within the sweet spot of four to 12 years, which I think is very much like the heart of, you know, four years because of bottled and bond is kind of this demarcation point. Yep. And I think at least historically 12 years was kind of considered to be like after 12, that stuff just starts getting blended into the younger stuff. Cause it's got too much wood on it. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go on this journey. Like let's really understand and let's see where, you know, where the bigger leaps like, are you going to notice more of a leap between four to five or five to six? Or do you find that weirdly, like somehow the difference between six and seven year old bourbon, you can't really tell, you know, but then for whatever reason from seven to eight, you see this huge change. So to me, it's really this combination of like, it's obviously collectible, yeah, um, but it's also educational. And it's just like out of curiosity, like, and then how about rye? Right. I mean, the, I think everyone knows the narrative around rye is like, well, rye drinks better younger than bourbon, but then there's this sort of like middle age where rye doesn't do as much, you know? So, well, let's, let's see all those things side by side. We've got rye aging, MGP rye, 95.5 aging from four to 12 MGP bourbon aging from four to 12. Like let's go on the journey and see, see what happens yeah and so and so that is still mgp and but talk about the significance of um the castle and key for people that may not know yeah i mean i think for those who are in the industry obviously old taylor which is a label that's owned by buffalo trace mm -hmm. has really become one of the most sought after and iconic um labels or bottles out there and then you have the actual old Taylor distillery built by Colonel E.H. Taylor in 1887. It was shut down in 1972, which was around the time that bourbon really kind of fell out of favor because, you know, vodka and gin mm -hmm. um, and white rum and these other spirits kind of started taking over uh, and bourbon was no longer the most popular spirit. Um, so a lot of distilleries shut down and, and, uh, Really, you know, you have this, if you think about it, this incredibly historic distillery um, built in 1887 um, that was left to go to ruin. You know, they, sh they shut the gates and, you know, it was for sale for a long time and nobody was caring for the property in any way. So, you know, there was a, a Rick, an entire Rick house that collapsed, other buildings, you know, everything was just dilapidated, roofs caving in um, and it's just sitting there. And I think there are a lot of people, including us, that had gone and, you know, you could like, you weren't supposed to, but you'd basically crawl over the fence or, you know, crawl under the fence yeah. and walk around. I mean, it's 113 acres, water running through the property in the middle of horse country, three miles from Woodford. And, you know, again, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden there's this giant castle. You know, and imagine that castle before any rest. You're like, it's, it was sort of bizarre yeah. and crazy. And it was just sitting there. And now, I mean, I think, you know, there's always history for the sake of history. But to me, it's pretty cool that, you know, the reason, and I don't think people actually, I guess people talk about limestone filtered water, but people don't really focus on the idea that water is the most important ingredient. Um, that, the reason Colonel Taylor picked that site was because of five ground springs. Mm -hmm. He built a keyhole shaped giant well 
around one of the springs to emphasize the idea that water is the key to his whiskey, right? And the idea that we're pulling water directly from the ground from the same spring that he would have, you know, back in the early 1900s, and that we're aging our barrels in the same brick house that he started constructing in 1887. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Right? So it's like a piece of bourbon history has come back, but it's not just about the buildings. It's about the actual, in, like not the ingredients in terms of grain, but water being one of the key ingredients still being used and, and the aging environment. So it's a pretty amazing story really. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I'm biased, but, I don't know. I, I think I saw a thing in like travel and leisure or departures or something like that, where they're based on Yelp reviews. It was like, these are the 25 distilleries, best distilleries to visit. And Castle and Key was number one. I mean, it's uh, incredibly, have you been? I haven't been. I've been in the area, but I, we weren't able to stop. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very, you know, as you know, a lot of distilleries look like what they kind of are, which is factories. Yeah, exactly. Right. Colonel Taylor had been traveling in Europe and I guess it ties back to the wine thing, but he had been visiting all these chateaus and these beautiful, like if you go to Bordeaux, you know, and it's really like these estates, mm -hmm. right? Like this wine estate. Yeah. And if you think about California wineries, they're kind of built in that way. It's like, Oh, there's some big grand building and then you have grounds. And, like, it's like a thing. <laughs> And so that's what he was inspired by that, which is crazy. And this is to me the craziest part about Colonel Taylor. He was trying to promote Kentucky bourbon tourism in 1887. Like he was imagining this place is like, I'm going to build this castle. And it has, and it's kind of a mix of inspiration from like England and Scotland. And it has these sunken gardens and like all this like beautiful grounds. And in 1887, He's thinking about tourism yeah. and, and building a place that people would want to visit. And it was really cool, actually, like in the early days, like when we were visiting the distillery, they found all these old framed pictures. And one of them is of, so there was, he set it up so that there was a train. There's a train depot that's still there. That's now um, like a cocktail bar so that, that's where the grain would come, but it was also set up so that that guests could come on a train wow. to directly to the distillery and get dropped off right next to the peristyle. So that well, and there are pictures of like, I'm trying to, I, I'll, I won't say the year cause I'll get the year wrong, but let's just say early 1900s. But there's a picture of all these ladies in their dresses with parasols and all these guys in their three piece suits with their bowler hats. And it says, Kentucky Derby Day barbecue at the old Taylor distillery. Wow. So he was, he was like throwing derby parties at the distillery. Yeah. And people were coming on the train to like go to this awesome party on the grounds. And to think about that, you know, that site being brought back to life now. I mean, how cool is that? It's incredible. It's especially yeah. now that it's, it is a, a, a tourism spot now again. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he was, I mean, I mean, he, I think he's, I think it's proven that he's still ahead of his time because it's the distillery everyone wants to go to because it's kind of, you can feel the history yeah. and it also speaks more to the idea of like bourbon being 
a craft rather than just like a you product. know a, a product that yeah. you make in a bourbon factory yeah um so jumping around a little bit um yeah. you mentioned earlier that you every year you're you're not focused on hitting the exact same notes you're focused yep. on the same principles that you've carried over from wine and so because of that your whiskey is going to taste different every single year even though it's the Correct. same line do exactly. you get any pushback from that and like what is what is the response from that because obviously people think- some people in, enjoy certain things about it and they may get disappointed when they find something different in it. I say, I would say we get like conceptually we get feedback, but in reality we don't get any feedback. Okay. Meaning, and honestly it would come more from like a distributor. Yeah. You know, or it could come from an account. Okay. Who would just bring up the same point? Like, well, aren't you worried that da 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 da? And I would be like, well, you know, it's pretty well established that it works in wine. I think anyone who pays attention to the craft beer world knows that everyone is like most interested in the next thing that the brewery is making. Mm-hmm. Like the next yeah. cool, like, Oh, now we're doing this. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing this. And I, I just think that like, it's, I mean, it's a valid point from the standpoint of, you know, well, yeah. What, what do you do if someone's like, I like last year and, but now I don't like this year. Um, but I, I guess I say to that, it's like, yeah. And so if that's not for you, there's the other 99.9% of bourbon. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we're, you know, we're not looking for, and I'll be honest too. I think my hunches and there's no way to know for sure. There's so many, there have to be so many people buying Pinhook who frankly aren't paying attention to any of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just like orange wax is orange wax. And they're like, Oh yeah. And it's got a cool horse on it. Oh, I didn't know the horse had changed. Oh, I didn't know that the pattern of uh, the silk pattern. Cause every year for each vintage, there's a, a new silk pattern inspired by jockey silks on the label. So last year was a half circle and this year are these like triangles. And so every year it's different. I also think, and I'm saying this really with all due respect as well. It's two things. One, even with wine, the vintages are different, but you'd have to be pretty dug in. Like, I think anyone who's got a palate for it and is interested, I could definitely sit down with you and say, Hey, let's taste Bohemian bourbon, orange wax, 2020 and bourbon heist, orange wax, 2021. And like, let's really dig in here. Right. Yeah. But if you were to just taste it, my, my biggest goal is to make tasty whiskey. And I don't think, again, if you're, if you really have a trained palate and you are interested in paying attention to these things, you might be able to pick out a bunch of noticeable differences. But if you weren't, it's the same mash bill. The, the age this year, the average age this year is higher. Like last year was basically a hundred percent three-year-old bourbon this year we've got a bunch of three and a half and, and some stuff even closer to four thrown in the mix Mm -hmm. in terms of the blend. Um, and again, if you were really paying attention and then last year was 95 proof, this year's 98 proof, because I also pick whatever proof I think best expresses the blend. But I would say in a good way that the average person who just 
randomly grabbed a bottle without really paying attention to like, oh, it looks different or it has a different date on it or that looks like a different horse. Hopefully they would just be like, oh, yeah. I don't even know if they're thinking about whether it tastes it the tastes same because everyone's expectation is that. Yeah. And even the people know? that would be able to pick it out may enjoy it because it's different every year. Yeah. I think the way hopefully that it's set up is for people that don't want to dig in, they could just know that whenever they buy a pinhook, they like the orange wax mm-hmm. and they don't really think about it outside of that. But then for people who are interested, there's a lot to talk about and a lot to think about. And certainly for people who collect, you know, yeah, there's a lot to, there's a lot to think about. I did want to mention one thing too, though, just cause I think it's not obvious when it comes to the blending. Um, so the way that we're able to have the variety is that when we pull barrels, we're pulling 30% more okay. than you need for the blend. So let's, to use easy numbers, and also it's accurate because it's a recent blend I did. If I'm going to blend 100 barrels of bourbon, I'm pulling 130 samples. Okay. The other thing that's different about the process, right, is most big distilleries blend in the tank. So they're constantly monitoring the distillate right? As it comes off, it's still, they're constantly monitoring, monitoring the distillate at barrel entry. Mm-hmm. And then they're just constantly monitoring maturation, right? Yeah. But when they decide to pull a thousand barrels and dump them, they're not doing a pre-blend. Okay. Right. Yeah. They're just, they're pulling based on their knowledge of like, well, if we take this many five-year-old barrels from warehouse H, you know, from these ricks on this floor. And if we take 75 barrels from here and so on and so forth, we know, and we have enough data that if we dump those, it's going to taste like maker's mark. Right. Yeah. And also because of the filtration and also because of the volume, right? So the more volume you have, the less noticeable the anomalies are. You have a bigger margin of error. Yeah, it's just, it's all going to like get absorbed yeah. in a way. Like, yeah, like if you had 20 barrels that were like bizarre, you know, they're just going to get swallowed up by the other 980 barrels. Exactly. Yeah. So what we're doing is I'm getting, so when I do a blend, I'm getting 130 single barrel samples. Okay. Right. Yeah. Then, I need to blend, I need to create a hundred barrel blend. Now, obviously I can't do that one barrel sample at a time. Like say like, let me try these a hundred together. Now let me try these a hundred together. I mean, just from a pure um, logistic standpoint, it would take forever. So the next step for us is to put 10 barrels, equal parts of 10 barrels in a new hundred ML. Now I've got a 10 barrel blend. Mm -hmm that I call like, that I call a block, you know, to me, it's like a block of flavor. It's a block of barrels. If I do that across all 130 barrels, now I have 13 blocks. Okay. Right. Now I taste all of those and I kind of think of each. So I want to think about the characteristics of each block. What is this block? Well, sure. It's got a bunch of stuff going on, but what I'm really getting here is baking spices. This block is like super caramely, this block has this interesting floral thing. 
This block is more about citrus. You know, it's more helpful to think about them as the primary flavor and aroma you're getting that makes sense. out of it yeah. than thinking about all the stuff that's going on because it helps you understand them as these blocks that you can then use to build your blend. The interesting thing is if I have 13 blocks and I only need 10 of them, that gives me 286 possible 10 block combinations out of 13. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot. That's a lot to play with, right? Yeah. And I would say I wouldn't try nearly that many. I think maybe eight, 10 on the high side, sometimes six, because I think at the point that you've tasted all the blocks, you're starting to have a pretty good idea of what is possible. And what's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. What's going to work. And also just like, how good can this be? So then when you start playing around with these different options and you come across a 10 block or hundred barrel blend that tastes phenomenal. I'm usually at the point where I'm like, that's great. Not, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. But I bet there's something better. Okay. You know, you get to the point where you've tried enough variations where you're kind of like, it's actually not going to get any better. And if I do it for too long, it's going to almost become like the paralysis by analysis. And then you're like, (laughs) then you almost get more turned around. So I, I like to approach that part more like a bourbon drinker okay, and like put on my bourbon drinking hat and just say like, if I love it, I love it. I'm not going to worry so much about, you know, well, there are 280 more possibilities. We better <laughs> like try them all. I think if you start trying them all, you're going to get a little, have you ever done a single barrel tasting where it's like, it goes on for too long. And you're almost and like, you, you don't notice what you to, you're at the point where it doesn't, you don't really notice the differences anymore. And then, yeah. And then you get turned around a little bit. You're almost like, it's like if you went on your gut instinct and there were four barrels in front of you and you only got to taste each one once, or maybe you got to taste each one once and then you had to narrow it down to two. And then you could only taste the the remaining two one more time. Yeah. I think, I don't, I don't think that would hurt the pick. It might even help it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I I mean, that makes sense. 2020 and like the the past year has been difficult. I mean, you have a background in the restaurant industry. Restaurants yeah. particularly have been have struggled the past year. But from the people I've talked to recently, bourbon has not had the same impact. It's been different, and they've just seen a, almost like a mini boom in the past year. Is that like something you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that everyone was saying that was concerning at the beginning of the pandemic was this is really where the bigger brands are going to thrive. Because if you can't walk in the stores and shop and you can't go to your local and the guy's like, oh, hey, it's good to see you. Like, I know you love new to try new stuff. We just got in blah. You should give it a go. It's more like people are doing curbside and they're just like, I'll take a Knob Creek. I'll take a bullet. You know, I'll take a Jim Beam black. Like it's going to favor the big brands. Um, I think what people maybe didn't anticipate on the other side of it was just, I mean, I would actually be curious to get your opinion on this. I only, I would say only, but I started digging in more specifically on the Instagram side into all of like into the community. That's right. It's exactly what I did. I started this. I mean, I started doing, 
I've always been interested in whiskey, but I really didn't start actually digging into it until April last year. Yeah. And that's kind of when it all started. Is it that's yeah. I think I think the same thing is I just started digging into it more and just learning and exploring different things. Yeah, so I I think that I certainly made a concerted effort you know, one to dig in to just kind of like see what everyone's doing mm-hmm. and out of for my own continuing education and out of curiosity, but also to say like, oh yeah, I mean this is a this is a forum where maybe I can let a bunch of people know about Ten Hook who like me are stuck at home and have an interest. And so maybe we can actually maybe weirdly it's a time when we can get more visibility. Yeah. You know, um, and so, you know, it's hard to understand. I mean, first of all, I think one thing that most people wouldn't necessarily know because it doesn't feel this way is that as an industry, and I'm not just saying bourbon, but like spirits in general, and I actually think it's wine, beer, and spirits, 80% of all sales happen at retail. Mm -hmm. It could be online, but like they're happening. So only 20% of total sales are at restaurants and bars. So as much as someone who owned restaurants and has a wife who still owns restaurants and many friends in the business, as much as I, um, of course, empathize with everyone, if you're looking at it from a pure industry standpoint, you know, most suppliers weren't really losing that much of their business. Yeah. Yeah, it's not where most of their business happens. Now, yeah. look, you have you have brands. I think the folks that really got hurt, I'm not, I'm not naming names, not because I don't think it's appropriate, but just because I wouldn't know who it would be specifically. But just, you know, imagine a local craft distillery mm-hmm. that really focused on what would make sense, like local bars and restaurants and their own tasting room. Yeah. And, and really wasn't trying to sell it retail that much outside of their own state, or at least like we're really focused regionally. I think folks like that really got hurt. Um, and then I think maybe I'm trying to think of anyone I know. I still don't know that I would think it would be a great time to launch a brand, you know, mm-hmm. but I think maybe we were in that lucky in between where we're still relatively, you know, I mean, our first release was in 2014. Um, we really started expanding into more states in like 2017, 2018. Um, but, you know, in the scheme of the business, that still makes us more of a, a young brand, even though we've been around a little bit. I think we've been around long enough to be established enough that it made it easier to... Um, yeah, and to just like, there was maybe enough interest already there that made it easier to be able to you know, do great podcasts like this, do Instagram lives and just like kind of create opportunities for people to explore and get to know Pinhook. Um, but so, yeah, it's actually, and I think like a lot of people too, right. It's, it's the nature of business. You know, unfortunately it happened in a really difficult way, but it's an opportunity. It's been an opportunity for the industry as a whole to kind of rethink how they do things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's such an obvious and small one, but like the general sales meetings, which are how suppliers talk to the sales force of a specific distributor always happened in person. And like, if I had to do one in Texas, I couldn't necessarily align 
the sales meeting with when I was spending time in Texas, just because there are only so many slots. Yeah. So I might have to spend an entire day getting to and from Texas in order to literally present for 20 minutes. <laughs> and Zoom was already around. Yeah. <laughs> but like, that's a considerable amount of time and money. And I think now everyone will be like, well, of course you can just do a Zoom. Yeah, it did make sense. Um, but I mean, there's so many other examples, but I think that's just one basic one. And I think there's been a lot of thought about, you know, how should we be spending our time? Um, how many, how far is your distribution? So we're in 26 States now. Um, and I, you know, without (laughs) listing them off the top of my head, (laughs) you you know, I'd say, we're in most of your major markets now. Okay. Um, I guess with the exception of some of what are called the control states, which is where the state is actually the buyer, essentially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or the state is the distributor. Because those states, as you might know, where where do you live, actually? I'm in Tennessee, but I'm from originally okay. from upstate New York. Okay, got it. Yeah, so you're in a, you're in a franchise state. Mm-hmm which has its own challenges, but the control states are really where it's like, you have to convince the state of Virginia, you know, to let Pinhook in. Should be easy. We've got the UVA orange wax and we've got horses. So, (laughs) um, but it's also just like a much different game because they're state run stores. I mean, I think we all know what government normally looks like. Um, you know, it's like, what if the DMV was running a liquor store? You know, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) um, so, um, yeah, so we like generally small brands will kind of stay away from control states, um, until they're a little more mature. So uh, my last question is what's next for Pinhook? What, what, what is on the, what's on the pipeline? What are you guys thinking of doing next? I think we have, um, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's taken us a while just to establish, like we have if you don't count our single barrels, which we only do as store picks, mm-hmm. we have six SKUs. It's honestly taken a while just to get everyone to like, even understand the basic idea that they're color coded. So I think it's, you know, as a company, you constantly want to like push the envelope. And of course for me, I'm just like endlessly curious and you always want to do new things, but we're also conscious of the idea that like, it's a lot of colors and it takes time. I mean, I think too, people are, we've been working on it. I mean, the, this fall, when we release the six year old vertical, that means the vertical will have been out for three years. Mm-hmm. I've just noticed it's been a real challenge in a positive way. As simple as I think the narrative is to just get people to understand mm-hmm. what that is. Yeah. Right. To just say like, Oh, I get it. So each year there's one a release and it's one year older than the following. And I need to buy two bottles, you know, one to drink and one to hold, or I need to get one bottle and pour, you know, a hundred MLs off and set it aside. And then I can drink the rest of the bottle. Um, and what is the silver and the gold and how's that different from the orange and the green and the pink and the teal and like all that kind of stuff. So we're definitely mindful of not, over saturating the market with so many colors and so many pin hooks that people get confused. 
Um, that said, the two things that we did last year and one thing that will be new this year that we're using to try to build off of that, one is our artist series, which was a black label. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Um, so, like, the spirit of that is experimentation, right? Okay. So, um, I was just talking to a guy. At a, have you heard of Manifest? I've heard of it, and, but I, I haven't tried it. So I was talking to the owner and he was like, they're on the water basically in Florida, Okay, you know, right on the coast. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, I'm really noticing these very interesting, um, not just the heat here, but the proximity to the ocean. Like I think that the aging environment is really critical and makes for a difference. So I'm talking to him about shipping 20 barrels of pin hook, like 10 rye, 10 bourbon to manifest. Hmm and aging it there and just saying like, okay, well, great. So we can compare apples to apples. We have barrels with the exact same mash bill, uh, same age aging at castle and key. So let's see what happens with something like that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what's interesting too, right. Is I know, I mean, you probably know this cause you've been dug in a little bit, but even when I owned my bourbon bar, when I first started, all I ever got told was like, American whiskey gains proof in the barrel. Mm-hmm. Well, all of our stuff is losing proof. So when we dumped the five-year rye vertical, tis rye time, um, that was barrel entry proof of 120. And at five years old, the proof of the blend was 111.68. So it dropped almost nine points. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, now I have these... And our castle and key barrels are losing proof too. Well, if I ship them to Florida, will they start gaining proof? Like, will they catch back up? And what's that going to do to the flavor profile? So the artist series or the black label is an opportunity for um, experimentation and just like playing around with stuff. The other release that we're doing this year for the first time is, so I actually pin hooked some barrels from Wyoming whiskey back in 2016 back when they were selling stuff. So we have, I, we only bought 10 barrels, but we have 10 and 11 year old Wyoming whiskey. Hmm. I had this idea because we have this winemakers approach that it would be fun to collaborate with people and with their palates. So a friend of mine who has a great wine company, uh, his name's Andre Mack and he was the head sommelier per se um, when I worked there. So I approached Andre and I was like, Hey, why don't we do a blend together? I know you've never blended whiskey, but I know you like whiskey. You blend wine for a living. If you take our principles and all the things I was saying, like the benchmarks of quality, it doesn't really matter that you don't understand how whiskey companies do their sensory stuff or any of that. Yeah. You just have a great palate. Like he's in the restaurant industry. He's in the wine industry. So I went and met up with him in Brooklyn and we took, we had 10 barrels and we did two five barrel blends, which are going to be released as a batch one and batch two. Batch one was 700 bottles. And I think batch two was like 567 bottles because one of the barrels was super light. Um, and so that's a white label, white wax called collaboration series. Okay. And it's also an opportunity to me, that's like less of an experiment and more of like our kind of like the roots of pin hooking. So I want to continue to find really cool barrels that 
are just to give me a chance to like stay on top of what everyone else is doing. Um, and also just to keep playing around and, and, and so for example, on this trip, we were in Austin and I stopped by still Austin. Mm -hmm. They're making really good stuff and they have some unusual stuff, hundred percent rye, uh, blue corn stuff. Um, they're making some really interesting, um, whiskeys. So I want to look to people like them and like say, well, maybe I can buy 10 barrels of this or 20 barrels of that. Um, I was really impressed by Driftless Glen in Wisconsin. I think they make really good rye. She tasted some really good stuff from Taconic. Hmm. So I think that is like, I see that as an opportunity to get into this idea of where we started is we're, we were, we always wanted to be transparent. We never wanted to pretend like we were distilling and we really always wanted to give credit to the, like be transparent and give credit to the distillery mm -hmm. and just say like, we're not, that's not what we do. We buy and age barrels and then we have our own approach to blending, but maybe, you know, maybe a McKenzie would be willing to sell us some barrels and we'll put out something that would do nothing like what they do, even though it's their distillate just because we have a different approach. Yeah. Um, and that's more, I mean, I think that spirit has existed in Scotland for a long time. It certainly existed beer. There's a lot more collaboration. So to me, the collaboration series is not just about maybe me collaborating with someone else on the blend, but also collaborating with distilleries and be saying like, Hey, maybe we have a different audience than you. Um, maybe we're distributed in other markets that you're not. So maybe this is an opportunity for you to get your distillate in the hands of people that haven't necessarily heard of you, but are familiar with Penhook. Cool. That's a really cool, and, that, that is a really cool, interesting idea. So I think those two things, you know, basically have endless possibilities is like, you know, on the one hand, like I said, there's the experimenting with our distillate and mm -hmm. saying like, okay, well, what happens if I take this, um, castle and key stuff and age it somewhere else? Or what if I try blending different proportions of our castle and key rye and bourbon? Or what if I try finishing it in a, California Cabernet Sauvignon cask or, you know, as yeah. you can imagine from what you see, those endless possibilities. And then the en endless possibilities of all the cool little distilleries that are making great stuff and all the people out there that I think have great palates, you know, maybe primarily in the wine world, but just it could be a chef or whomever and saying like, hey, let's blend a whiskey together and like yeah. see, see what we get. That's cool. To get your hands on some of those exclusive releases, you'll want to sign up for their new text messaging service called Breeze. There you'll not only get the chance to buy some of those black or silver wax bottles when they're released, but you can also buy any of their bottles just by texting them. You can sign up for that on Pinhook Bourbon's website. We have a link in the show notes. And thank you for listening to Barrel Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. It helps this show grow and helps others discover the stories behind their favorite whiskeys.